that would have been the next best thing, right? If I couldn't be in theater, I'll be a TV writer. But I had no sense of self. I was so scared. I grew up so financially unstable that the, the only thing I wanted was financial stability. I'm Sharla Larston. I've been a TV writer for almost a decade, but it wasn't that long ago that quitting my day job and moving to Hollywood was nothing but a pipe dream. After lots of failures, many mistakes, and many lessons learned, I've now written for seven TV shows, two features, and sold three TV pilots. I've done all this through imposter syndrome, burnout, and with zero roadmap. On the Working Writer Podcast, I pull back the curtain on breaking in and teach screenwriters and creatives how to thrive both personally and professionally. Without further ado, let's get to work. Welcome to another episode of the Working Writer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me once again. If this is your first time here, thank you for tuning in. If you've been here a bunch and you haven't left a review, if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't left a thumbs up, please do that. It helps me out so much. And if you are tuning in and have been tuning in and you don't like it, well, you should probably leave a review and let me know as well because I'd like to know what's up. Um, I'm very excited for today's episode. My guest today is Tara Schuster. She's a former executive at Comedy Central. She was heavily involved in Key and Peele, the massively successful sketch show. And she also happens to be the executive that was in charge of my Comedy Central sketch show when I sold a show to Comedy Central. And she was one of the most fantastic execs I've ever worked with. And I actually kind of developed a friendship with Tara, which is also out of the norm. I usually don't become like super good friends with my executives that I sell shows to or who are in charge of the shows that I work on. So I think it says a lot about Tara and who she is. And what was also more shocking because she was such a wonderful executive is when I saw that she left Comedy Central and she pivoted to being a self-care author and her book, Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, has blown up and she sold a ton of copies and it's been massively successful. And I was absolutely dying to know the story behind what happened. Like, how did Tara go from being an exec at Comedy Central, working on shows like Key and Peele, working with comedians like me, to becoming a self-care author? And the story is super fascinating. It's really heart-wrenching. And I think it's also a really beautiful testament to what is possible uh, for all of us as writers and creatives and just people who are seeking um, to do what we want to do and what we love to do. I hope you enjoy this episode. Here's my interview with Tara Schuster. Tara Schuster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I am dying to have this conversation. <laughs> like, <clears throat> I can't even tell you how excited I am to have this conversation because I knew I know you from another life when yes. you were an executive at Comedy Central and we were developing a show together. And now I look up and you are a freaking best-selling author of self-help books um that are fantastic thank you so I'm just kind of like obviously like I mean I don't even know where to start Tara honestly <laughs> I know honestly Tara okay here's where I'm gonna start like I'm I'm just fascinated by this transition that you made and I just kind of want to hear the backstory like I kind of want to hear who you are where you come from how you got into Comedy Central, and then how you made this like really big shift to becoming an author. So it's so funny because you know the quote unquote real me before I became, you know, a self-care author. And, yeah. you know, the past four years have been basically traveling the world <laughs> talking about mental health and these things that had nothing to do with my job. And we met at Comedy Central because I love your work and I think you're so funny. And we were lucky enough. I wanted to do a sketch comedy show with you on the network. Yeah. I, I remember um, the gluten-free sketch you wrote oh like it was yesterday. Made yeah. me giggle. Yeah. Um, and so you met me in my 
professional context, but what you probably didn't know was that I was suffering from severe anxiety and depression and had grown up in a neglected, psychologically abusive household and everything was a shit show inside. <laughs> like, I'm I curious. Say, yeah. yeah. I like, just want to yeah. say that I would have never had an inkling. Is that what you're curious yeah, about? If how, I could tell? how did I no. come off? Like You how came off as completely competent number one i found you yeah. to be one of my favorite execs we've had dinner together i don't have dinner with execs all the time mm. you know what i mean like it's just like we became kind of we became friends yes you came to my house after yes. uh george floyd you know what i yes. mean like you're you're just like a real like you're a friend so i'm just like i thought you were an excellent uh extremely competent exec you had shepherd you, you know you were very much a part of key and peel and things like that so it's not like i was I could see that you have chops and you know what you're doing. Um, and you also came across as super confident and like really present and really like engaged and happy. And I feel like when we're in our trauma, when we're in our, you know, self-conscious, subconscious programming, we're not really present. We're not really yeah. here. So I, I, I don't know how you were managing it. <laughs> I would have never guessed. Yeah. Well, by that point I had done all of I had done a solid five years of work and had actually are written already written my first book by yourself the fucking lilies, which I wrote in the mornings before work. Wow. So, so you know, I'd get up at six and I'd write for a couple of hours and then I'd go to Comedy Central to be an executive. Um, and for me, working has is like being in flow and being present with you with the artist. I'm always my best self if I'm working. So um, it's just great to know that I never came off as, oh no, or like, or that you didn't even know. It's just cool that like you knew me. I sometimes forget, oh yeah, I was an executive. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I ran Key and yeah. Peel on behalf of the network. Forgot right. that that happened. Um, I had a whole other career. So yeah, that's really, really interesting to hear. And by the way, just up top. So yeah. anybody listening who thinks they can't make an extreme pivot. Yeah. I, I have only made extreme pivots. Well, on, tell me about them. Let's yeah. hear about it. Yeah. yeah so you know, I gave a little context. I grew up in a mess wreck disaster of a house in Brentwood, which is like a fancy area in LA. So I've, everything looked really good on the outside. You know, my mom's a doctor, my dad's a lawyer. Uh, but in the inside, I mean, the literal foundation of the house was built on a mudslide prone, earthquake weak, um, shaky foundation. Like if you were to write a sketch, you you, it would be too much if you said, well, what if we built the house so that it's constantly crumbling? Wow. Um, but growing up, it was always some project to save the house. It was dangerous um, and it was psychologically dangerous. And I exited my childhood thinking I was worthless. That was the number one message I received was you are worthless. Because um, as a child, your parents reflect to you the reality of the world and so if they don't see you and if they're not attuned to your needs, you can't have needs. You can't have a clear picture of who you are. So the one thing I could do, though, to get hugs, you know, and that's what I'm talking about, like basic yeah. level, like never hug, never told you're proud of you. No, you know, this is silly and I haven't even talked about it anywhere, but never like a bedtime story. Yeah. It, it just kind of sucked. It's what I'll just put the word sucked on the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but external validation was available to me. And so I was just a hustler. You know, I'm also a millennial. So I was sold this idea that my job would have my would be my self-worth. I remember all the commencement addresses at the time were find your joy, find your bliss. Yeah. You know, you'll never work a day in your life. And I'm right. like, cool, is this desk job my bliss? <laughs> You know, is yeah. this really supposed to do it for me? But I bought in. I drank the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. mostly for my own survival. And so I, you know, went to, got through high school, got through college, ended up going to a really good college, uh, which I thought would save my life. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Um, got to Comedy Central. I was an intern at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart first, which, and because oh, this cool. is, it was, and I'm so glad he's back. Yeah. Oh my God. But I'll, I'll speak to that. I know. Yeah. But I know. 
I'll, I'll speak to that in a second. But actually, because this is a writing podcast, mm-hmm. so I went to Brown for playwriting. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had a whole other vision of my life. I specifically went to Brown because Paula Vogel, who's a fantastic playwright, she ran the program there. She's won the Pulitzer Prize for How I Learned to Drive. She then went on to run Yale's um, playwriting program. Like at the time, Brown was the place for playwrights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah Rule went there. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I was, oh my God, I'm going to be a playwright. I started working at the public theater after I graduated from college and also every indie theater because I was like hustly, Mm -hmm. you know, so a million side gigs, none of them paid. Mm -hmm. All of them were like, we'll pay you in wine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I cannot subsist off of this. And that's actually why a friend of mine in theater said, hey, I just interned at The Daily Show. You should give it a try. And that's why I pivoted to TV because I just honestly didn't have the chutzpah, the wherewithal, the bravery to just dive into theater and writing in particular. And I would have wanted to be a TV writer. That would have been the next best thing, right? If I couldn't be in theater, I'll be a TV writer. But I had no sense of self. I was so scared. I grew up so financially unstable that the the only thing I wanted was financial stability, I, you know? and um, structure. So after The Daily Show, I was hired by Comedy Central to be a PA for their website called jokes.com. Oh, wow. So never my, heard of fr- that. <laughs> yeah, my, my friends are all like, I work at McKinsey, I work at Goldman Sachs, or I'm at the public theater. I'm like, I'm at jokes.com. <laughs> You know, it was really um, quite a humiliating experience, but I had to basically, as the lowest person on the totem pole, I was transcribing all of their stand-up, all of it. So that meant I ingested, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours, every Comedy Central presents, premium blend, these series that like nobody remembers, I watched them all. And so I got like this amazing crash course in comedy immediately. And from there, I just sort of, um, I kept moving up and finding new opportunities. And I didn't want to be in digital because digital at the time was also like the redheaded stepchild that everyone wanted to pretend was just like a fad or it's like a stepkid and whatever, soon enough, we'll, we'll be rid of them. Nobody knows what this is. No, Wild yeah. West. Right, right. TV is the only thing that matters. Right. So I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I hated my, I never get to talk about this. Yeah. I hated my job with my full body for <laughs> four years. Okay. Four years, I hated every single day. The only reason I did it was I thought it was a grad school in digital and comedy. And we're kind of right. And my dad actually pointed out to me, he was um, who I have a very um, challenging relationship with. Another way to look at this job was they were paying me to learn about comedy. 100%. So that's what I ended. I hated it. And I was like, okay, this is my real education. And from there, I saw that Key and Peele, I saw the pilot. And I was just oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I know this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there weren't that many people at the pilot stage, you know, who were like, oh my God, oh my God, later for sure. Um, So I campaigned to become the digital producer on that. Very cool. And that's what led to everything because I really, I was embedded in the offices of Key and Peele, and I just did everything for them. You know, their Facebook updates, Twitter. I mean, it, that time was the Wild West as well. So yeah. I really could do anything. I ended up weirdly segment producing. If you've seen um, Obama's Anger Translator, have you yeah. ever seen? Of so course. <laughs> I, I segment yeah. produced all of them except the one in the original. Wow. In, in the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, with things that are not what the digital producer does. Yeah. And it was because I was voracious, because I was always pitching things. I was just, that was my complete life. Can I ask, what does a segment yeah. producer specifically do? Everything. Mm-hmm. So that meant, you know, um, my 
kind of idea, it might not have been my idea, it might have been somebody else's. Um, I, but the idea was we would leave holes in the show so that um, we could put topical Obama sketches in because it was the election, it was Obama um, and Mitt Romney. Yeah. So to keep it topical, this is what we were going to do. And to do it, I realized, oh, I have a budget within digital. What if they premiered on digital? What if we did something cool here? Um, and so it's funny looking back, I like begged the other departments for a budget. So first off, that's part of it, right? You're pulling together the sources. Nobody was like, here's a hundred grand. It was like mm -hmm. digital. Do you have 20 grand marketing? Do you have 20 grand promo? You know, like everybody give me money. We got a budget together. We built a set, which I oversaw, like putting the set together, which was very little. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember if we did it literally in their offices. Um, we did Van David and Mike in their offices. But anyway, it means you're over, you're helping with the script. You're um, overseeing the edit. You know, you're this literally- This is promo. This is not the actual sketch that is shot in the show. Yes, it was yes. the actual sketch. Oh, that was this shot is the, the actual sketch. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we just okay. kept it open for digital. So nice. like, because they wanted to be relevant and topical, Yeah. Um, we did it in digital. And I'm actually right now sort of wondering if I'm confusing memories. It mm -hmm. was actually in the show, but I'm wondering if Van Davian and Mike, the the web series that I was way more involved in and oh, oversaw okay. every little piece, but I was okay. doing weird TV stuff as the okay. digital person. Cause I'm like, cause you were saying that you were doing digital. So I assume that you were doing the segment production of like any of the kind of non linear show kind of digital oh, producing. These were linear. Okay. Obama's anger translator was yes. linear and yeah. it was just a weird circumstance of money. That okay. Digital was the one funding it. So I was the one running Interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. And then Van David and Mike, which was their web series companion, which ended which up. I'm such a nerd that of course I've watched. So <laughs> that's, that is my baby. That yeah. was Emmy nominated Van David and Mike. Hilarious. And then I became Emmy unnominated for that. But that is a, a completely different story. And I have taken us way down a road. I hope people, I, I feel like I have rambled about Key and Peele. Um, they're amazing, by the way. I'm so glad to hear it because you <laughs> never know. <laughs> oh, they're like the best people. Oh, totally. that's wonderful. That's really cool. But I mean, we, we're not down a rabbit hole beca because this is all a part of your story. But, you yeah. know, you to me, you have such a big story because of everything I've kind of watched you do just in the time that I've known you. So let's keep it moving. So you were working yeah. as, you know, you, you took this jokes.com job that you just hated. Everybody else was doing quote unquote, real jobs, which was the yeah. exact same thing for me when I was doing stand-up comedy. All of my friends were in law school right. <laughs> or like in med school. And I'm like freaking out, like, am I making a horrible, horrible decision? But ultimately we do what we want to do. Yeah. We, can't, we can't live other people's lives. So, no. so you're there, you make the best of it. You end up working on this gold mine of a show. Yes. Um, and then what? So they ended up trusting me so much. And then I ended up again, with this voracious need to succeed, it was like a dual um, two rivers or something coming together that I ended up leaping from their digital producer to the executive in charge, the development executive Insane. of the TV show. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's not like a thing. Um, but I think when you prove your value, yeah. you know, prove your worth, when you're really a trustworthy member of that team, great things can happen. And- yeah, can that's I ask, how TV. Can I ask a T question? A little sure. bit of T. Please. Did you replace another executive that was already there? <laughs> uh, I think there were a couple job openings. I see. There had to have been an open headcount, but I don't, I think it was somebody who left, I think his name, I think he left to do um, the guys who did the Lego movie. Okay. Um, whatever. There was people who left of their own accord okay. to go on to amazing things. All right, all right. Uh, I'm not digging for bad stuff. <laughs> just, no, no, I'm no. That asking. yeah, heads, heads up. Yeah. You're you're totally right. Yeah, yeah. and I campa I campaigned because it wasn't a awesome. natural transition. Yeah, very cool. Is there anything specific you remember about that transition? Because in my mind, being in a 
in a in TV uh, and knowing a lot of people who have worked on like the digital production side of a particular show leaping to uh, executive producing the entire show is a huge leap. <laughs> that is oh, yeah. like, what was that? <laughs> like, what did, <laughs> Do you remember anything specific about what you did or what mindset you were in that like made you be able to make that kind of leap? Yeah. I wouldn't take no for an answer. That's all it was. Um, everyone told me I couldn't do it. But everyone had told me I couldn't do everything, including my whole childhood. Mm -hmm. So I was so used to just, you know, and it's not like it didn't hurt every time I was told. And I was told specifically, you can't move from digital to development because you don't know any agents or any TV people. You don't, many development executives, the way they get their job is they start as an assistant to a manager or agent. And then they kind of, and they work their way up to coordinator and then they get to a network. And it's important because then they have all these relationships. They know all the comedians, they've right. seen all their work. Hollywood's super creepy. And there's always like four people on any phone call that, you know, you and I talking, but then both of our assistants on the right, line right, right. taking notes. So you really get an education by taking yeah. all those notes and all those people. I had none of that, zero. So I was told, okay, you definitely can't get this job. But what I had was this deep knowledge of digital and the artistry. I mean, I had gone to Brown for playwriting. Like I knew what I was talking about when I was looking at a script. So it, it wasn't like I, I had, didn't know anything. And the, di and the development team had zero clue what was happening in digital, like none whatsoever. So my job, I pitched it that way. I will bring you guys up to speed. And so I also ended up running the show at midnight because, and that was like just perfect timing. I got really lucky on that one because it was such a digital centric show. It just, they needed someone who knew what they were doing to take over that show. Um, so my mindset, and it's always been this way, everyone will tell you, you can't pivot, you can't do something. They're really talking about themselves, their own fears, their own experiences, what, what they deem possible just for them. It has nothing to do with you. You uh, like you can pivot. I've that's all I've done. I have a couple of questions for you cuz cuz what we're talking about kind of brings up two things for me specifically. And first, I'm just going to say them so that I keep them in mind. First is that like this chip on your shoulder that you have, you know, of I got to prove everybody right wrong. I yeah. got to you know, I got to prove myself. Yeah. Um whenever I have, you know, done things like that it's helped me do great things but it's also what i think one of the things that led to my burnout i had this like really giant burnout because what i realized is that even though this can be really motivating fuel at a certain point at the root of it it is dirty fuel it is a lack of worthiness and uh the proving myself it's not that I can't do it. It's not that all, all this other stuff. It's just the fuel that's getting me there is kind of dirty fuel. It's not actually recharging me and replenishing me. Ultimately, what it does is it, it, it drove me into the ground. So that's the first thing <laughs> is, is like driving yourself with this kind of I got to prove everybody wrong kind of thing. Um, and I want to know, did that work out well or did it not work out well? <laughs> and two is that going into a work situation where you're in a higher level, there's a lot more pressure, um, everybody's watching you, all this other stuff. To me, it's like, it kind of sets you up to fail. You know what I mean? Because I don't know, I think there's just like a lot of it of like, like when you go into these situations where you're taking this huge leap like that and there's all this information you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. It sets you, I think it sets people up for imposter syndrome or it has set me up for imposter yeah. syndrome. And it has, uh, and if I'm not in the right mindset with that imposter syndrome, uh, that can also be a really negative thing because then I'm catering to my ego of like, I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look stupid. So I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to do these kinds of things. So those are the two things. Um, did it work out for you to continue to push yourself with this kind of, I got to pull, you know, prove everyone wrong kind of fuel. And did you experience any kind of imposter syndrome, <laughs> like, or any big, hard, 
Uh, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, couldn't resist. Yeah, I could, I'm sorry. Obstacle when you got to this job. Yeah, I relate on both um, levels. And, and the first question about burnout um, is very relevant to me now and the kind of work I do. 100% the reason that I climbed the corporate ladder so quickly. The other thing to note in all this is I was super young. Right. Like You're in your I, 20s. Yeah, late. Yeah. This was late twenties, early thirties. I'm one of the mm -hmm. youngest VPs ever. Um, Nuts. Yeah. So I was burning out, and it was completely the need to prove myself, 100. percent You know, because it was this fancy, glamorous job. Jordan Peele is shouting me out from the stage of the Emmys. The moments like that said to me, "I am worthwhile." I didn't, you know, I might have come from this quote unquote odd household, but look at me now, like I made it and I did complete and, you know, but honestly, then it also gave me the willpower to write a book. You know, when you talk, when I talk to other authors about writing a book and having a really stressful job, like TV executive, they laugh at me. That's not how you do it. That's why that's crazy. Looking back, I don't, I actually don't know how I physically was able to, other than I, I have in my um, camera roll on my phone photos. I would take a photo at every desk I was at. So, uh -huh. you know, like a bachelorette. Yeah. If I was going, I would demand that one room have a desk or figure out a desk situation and I would skip a bunch of stuff to write. Wow. So now looking back, I'm like, okay. And it was worth it. So the grind, the hustle, got me really far, got me, you know, two books that have sold over a quarter million copies. Which is crazy. Yeah, I uh, didn't, I didn't, but I, I'm the one who's the most surprised of all. And then you run out of fuel. Yeah. And then you actually have to figure out, oh, I can't overwhelm my way through my life. How do you gentle your way through your life? But maybe this is controversial, but I'm not sure that it's possible to do it any other way. I just, the like sheer amount of work, and I'm not saying that's good, Yeah. but the amount of work, just man hours mm -hmm. that I had to pull off in, in those 12 years. And maybe, maybe there are really well-adjusted people who had amazing childhoods who have done, and then were able to accomplish that much. But I would be surprised if that were the case. Now I'm not saying it, it didn't work or for me, like just knowing me, um, if I knew I was, but if I knew I was worthy, I probably would have just gone into TV writing. I probably would have had a completely different path. I would have just started being a writer. And since that was more aligned, maybe it would have been more gentle and easy. You know, it, like the whole choice would have been different. So I think right now I'm at a point where I wish I could overwhelm my way through something. I, I don't have it in me anymore. Like, I do not have that dirty fuel in me. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, why can't I just get this thing done? Um, a previous version of me would. And then I have to remember, oh, because a previous version of me only thought that my work was what mattered. And so it was like life or death. Right. Cool. And like, right. and now I'm good. You know, now the leaps that I take feel a lot more aligned, a lot more, um, they do feel gentler, although- they have all their issues too. Right. So <laughs> not in survival mode anymore. It exactly. Like. That's just what it is. You're just exactly. operating in a totally different way. Exactly. So that, that's awesome. So then, so then what did it look like when you made that leap? Was there imposter syndrome? Did you yes. deal with anything? But it, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't imposter syndrome. Mm. I didn't know things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was lack of knowledge. <laughs> But that is what imposter syndrome is. You think that the fact that you don't know something is a you problem <laughs> instead of the fact that you don't know something. Well, you know, imposter syndrome, I have, first off, we sh the term imposter syndrome is problematic because it turns this into a pathology that's our fault that we did it. Right. In the original study, it's actually called imposter phenomenon. And interesting. It, yeah, it's really interesting, the history of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, the organizational psychologist, um, Adam Grant, often talks about there is a real difference, though, between noticing a gap in knowledge, which is what I had, and having knowledge and feeling like you don't have enough. I didn't have the knowledge. 
so in so sometimes I felt bad that I didn't have the knowledge, but I'm also shameless. So I just asked everybody all the time. I was always asking questions. I never was quiet about it. I often said, I don't know this. Can you help me? Like little things, um, you know, on a, like a budget stuff avails. What did anyone mean when they said tech avail? I had no idea. So I just didn't mind um, being the person who didn't know. And also, you know, I think at the time, I, you know, I think later um, when I started doing meditation and thinking about being in beginner's mind, it's just not a problem to me not to know things. I, at first it feels bad. And then you're like, oh, this just means I have a lot to learn. And I wasn't going to take any shit from anybody. Like, the only thing that got on my nerves were um, people who were promoted or got perks who maybe knew the agents, but I did not think were doing a good job on behalf of the company. Okay. That would drive me wild. Okay. With anger. Well, okay. <laughs> um, when did you get into meditation? Like, when did this kind of... When did you start? Like, what made you start writing the book? Yeah. yeah. So the book just started off as a Google Doc um, to save my life because, you know, I was had really not good uh, flirtations with suicidal ideation over all the Ooh. years. You know, we talk about it and I talk about my story like it's funny, but my life was um, in danger many times. And that's why I thought, okay, I need to, I'm not to blame, but now this is my responsibility. I have to take care of myself. Nobody else is going to do it. I don't have mentors. That's another piece of all this is you can do all this without mentors. I didn't have a wise adult telling me what to do. I, you know, read memoirs like they were my mentors and took the lessons I learned there and tried to apply them to my own life, especially in comedy. Like Steve Martin is a great one. Uh, Born Standing Up was one of my Wonderful Bibles. Book. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Um, and so the, the I was just a Google Doc uh, that I started when I was 25. I did it for five years. And this means, you know, reading memoir like their self-help creepily watching my friends and their parents interact and kind of figuring out what their dynamic is. I mean, and, and other things like what are values, what are principles, what are vegetables, uh, genuinely, what are they, which one should I be eating? Like very basic things too. Did that for five years. At the end of five years, I had a 600 page Google doc and felt like a different person. And that's when I realized I have an offering. Because I'm like not that special. There's no way other people haven't been through some shade. Maybe you weren't in as as extreme in a situation as I was in. Maybe you were in much, much worse. But maybe you had parents who totally nurtured you and you can still relate to feeling not worthy enough. You know, your parents walk in with all kinds of baggage and they don't even know it half the time, right? So we all have these uh, gaps where we need help in reparenting. So that's you know, I had always wanted to be a writer though. So I was doing this project, this Google Doc to save my life. It has nothing to do with publication. I didn't even think about that. At the same time, um, a detail that nobody else knows because I was working on Key and Peele, Jay Martell actually was helping me with a pilot that um, I, an original pilot, cause I thought I'm gonna leap from here to TV writing. That's what I'm gonna mm -hmm. do. And I finished the pilot and it's really good. And there's interest at WME uh, to represent me, to take it out. And I just put it in a desk. I was just too scared. I, I just like way too scared of financial instability. That was like the main thing and decided, okay, I'm just going to continue to be an executive. But the um, desire to write never left me. So I started submitting to the New Yorker slush pile and I started getting in. And once I started getting in, I don't know, books just seemed like a safer route, probably because it wasn't in TV. Because if I had taken a comedy out and pitched it, I don't think I could have kept my executive job. I would have had to quit. But a book, they carved out of my contract and I was like, I'm realizing that in the moment. That's actually probably why I just continued. I also always wanted to be an author. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I don't even remember what the original question is, but um, just the why you wrote a book. <laughs> and it sounds like yeah, it was because it seemed like the best way to express yourself as a writer. Absolutely. Um, which I just think is so funny that you say that you didn't want to, you, you canceled out TV writing because you did not want the instability. <laughs> which is so funny because it's true. Um, it is not a particularly stable career unless you're literally like in the very top of the, the lucky the pile. Yeah. I mean, lucky. Yeah, it's true. It is luck as well. I nobody knows this, but I actually had a deal to turn my first book into a TV series and was in development working on it. And I found the whole process so miserable that I essentially quit Tara. my <laughs> own show <laughs> about my own life. Tara, no, I hate no, it. Yeah, you did not. <laughs> yeah, I, and it was a you really good idea. You, a development executive, did not quit your own development because of how annoying and obnoxious. Yes, I did. Is. Yes, I did. That's insane. Yeah, you know, I realized this dream that I had to be a TV writer. I hadn't realized the hours. Yeah. So, so now as an author, right, I can go speak, yeah. I can go on a retreat, I can, I can coach people. My income in a lot of ways is up to me. But as a TV writer in the process, I met 42 times on this project to turn the TV show into, that's a lot. 42. <laughs> yes. And I, I yeah. can't really talk about what sure, sure. transpired, but sure. It was miserable. I had a horrible, horrible, horrible time. Everyone treated me poorly. I shouldn't say that, but it's true. It's true. Um, and nobody cared that at the time I was a best-selling author in the comedy category. So like Trevor Noah is born a crime and then I'm like number two in Amazon or whatever. And they treated me like I had never worked in comedy, that I didn't know anything. And that's when I also realized, wow, writers are treated so badly. I had no idea. So when writers would come, I'd hear that their contract was um, delayed at business affairs. And I'd think, oh, yeah, that sucks. But moving on, it doesn't really matter. On the flip side, it took one year to negotiate my deal. Yeah. And it took them an additional year to pay me, yeah. which my lawyer wrote to them, are you punking us? And <laughs> You know, and he's like a fancy real lawyer. And to which I said to him, like, if they're hard up for cash, I can give them a loan, but they should let us so know. Funny. Wow. So yeah, no interest in brutal. TV. Absolutely brutal. Um, <laughs> and you said how badly they treat writers. This is how badly they treat TV writers specifically. Oh, because, yeah. Yeah. As TV a published writing, author, yeah. I feel like I get treated. No, you get way more respect. <laughs> oh, yeah. Way more respect. Yeah. Every, you right. know, um, and, and my product, what I love about books is my yeah. book will get to live, you know, whether it's or yours. not people buy it. Yeah. Right. It won't get canceled. There's yeah. no, um, unless it gets canceled for other reasons, but it, it also won't, um, I don't need to make a pilot. Right. Like nobody's no. green lighting the series. It's a book. They buy it with the intention of selling it. Unless you really mess up, it's for sure going to be published. Interesting. Well, this is a great spot to take a break. And when we come back, I want to get into the publishing process for Buy Yourself a Fucking Flowers. And we're back. What was the publishing process like? So I had a very, I think, um, abnormal route because I had sat through a gajillion pitches. So in development, you're sitting through constant pitches of we want to do this show. Here's, here's what the show idea would be. Here's the talent attached. Here's how we'd market it, right? I knew what, what executives responded to in a pitch, and so the pitch for By Yourself, The Fucking Lilies, was it actually went viral within publishing. Like, I know that pitch was amazing. And had it not been amazing, there would have been something seriously wrong with me. You know, like, 
shame on me for not using all that experience. And so yeah. you're saying that the experience of sitting in a bunch of TV pitches helped you write a book pitch. Yes, absolutely. Okay. What was it? You know, because when we're looking at um, a TV pitch, the number one thing I always looked for was point of view. Why are you the person to write this? Why are you the person to make this TV show? Why is it urgent? Why does it happen right now? What's the world? Like, do you really see tonally what it is? Um, do you see how these characters develop? Can you imagine a complete story arc with these characters? Those are all the same things you need in a book. And I also knew that um, I had a lot of contacts in Hollywood at this point. And in publishing, Hollywood is very fancy. So I could, <laughs> I could also put that, you know, yeah. um, these people will blurb it. I have all these experiences. And it wasn't, I wasn't writing a self-care book having never done anything in my life. I had achieved a lot by the point at which I wanted to write this book. So it gave it a lot of more legitimacy. Um, but absolutely, sitting through pitches really understanding which ones resonated with me. Here's like a small thing. Um, pitches that start with telling the story, a personal anecdote about why I responded more to than pitches that didn't, that talked about some like general societal thing. So my pitch from the jump is super voicey. It's immediately into the story and why it matters to me and why it is urgent that right now this needs to be made. I don't know that that's obvious if you haven't um, sat in a pitch before. So yeah, I applied all my TV pitching to my book pitching. Wonderful. Amazing. And then so it became buzzy in the publishing world because yeah. of this wonderful pitch. Yeah. And then what happened? <laughs> so it actually went to auction. Um, cool. So, you know, different publishing, and I'm only like explaining this in detail because it's such an opaque process, Yeah, you know, and I really want to let people into what it actually is. Um, and the nice thing about pitching for publishing is they'll only take a meeting with you if they're interested and likely to say yes. Whereas in TV, you're going into cold rooms. You have no idea. The executives probably haven't looked at anything. They're supposed to watch a video. They probably didn't. They're supposed to read five pages. They probably didn't. In publishing, not only have they read everything you sent them, they've basically already made up their minds. And again, are only going to see you if they're into you because those pitches are more about um, wooing you and like talking about what the project would be like with them. So the pitch document is actually of paramount importance because that gets you, that's that's like really the first step. Words really matter. What you write really matters. It, did right? you have, did you have like a publishing agent or whatever it's called at that point? Yes. You did? Yeah. So I actually said, I was at Just for Laughs in Montreal <laughs> and I said to, um, Sarah Babineau, who ended up being one of the heads of Comedy Central, were at dinner. And I said, I want to write a book. The universe just said, tell Sarah this information in this mm -hmm. moment. And I did. I said, I want to write a book. And she said, oh, great. Um, I actually know somebody else who writes New Yorker, you know, shouts, um, who just published a book. And it turned out to be Susanna Fogel, um, who's the direct, she's actually a a director. She directed the Mila Kunis, um, Kate McKinnon, that spy movie. She directed oh, Tennessee. Cool. So I talked to Susanna, a TV director, and she introduced me to her agent. And her agent is the one who ended up um, being my literary agent, which is not a normal path. I don't, that's how I got my agent. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what you asked, right? You said what? Yeah. And did she read anything of yours before she agreed to be your agent? Yeah, she read, um, you know, because I had a Google Doc, I had mm -hmm. cleaned it up and that's what she read. And then she worked with me for free for nine full months Wow! to turn those pages into something much, much better. And then on the proposal, and she wouldn't let anything by. That's another reason it was such a good proposal. She was wild about the details and it had to be the best 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 and she never said it that way mm -hmm. but she wouldn't let me progress mm -hmm. until it was perfect and she's still my agent 
So that 600 page <laughs> Google Doc, did that become the book or did that become the pitch? Yeah, it became the source material for the book. And a, a pitch in publishing is like a boilerplate template, you know? Yeah. Marketing, why, uh, all these different things. So some of some of the 600 pages ended up in the template, uh, but mostly the 600 pages were the meat of, of the book. So it seems like the development of your book pitch was much more enjoyable and very different from the development of the TV show based on your book. Yes. Yeah. So 100%. how was the development different if you can talk about it? The development, how can, how can I talk about this? When it's a book and it's your own, you're in charge. You're the boss. You know, they say TV is a writer's medium. Books, really a writer's medium. And at the end of the day, it's what do I want to say? And there aren't very many barriers to anything because it's just a book. Like no one, they already approved it. Um, and so in TV, first off, I didn't want to do a straight up adaptation. I wanted to do something fictional based off of the book. So that was its own. I really liked that period of imagining what could this be? Um, but the, I wasn't in charge of the pitch process. You know, if you're at a studio and you're with a fancy showrunner and all these things, I wasn't running things anymore. And um, I really didn't like how things went. Yeah, it's really different when you're in the creator seat and you have all these cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> and it is, it just makes every step so difficult uh, because the voice gets scattered a million different yeah. ways. It's just really a, yeah. a frustrating process. And had know? they been cooks in concert <laughs> with me, you know. Had what, we been cooking the same had, meal. Had we been cooking the same meal. <laughs> I would want a, you know, right. um, a haute cuisine right. chef. I, like mm -hmm. I was really happy to be the sous chef because again, right. I actually hadn't written in TV. Mm -hmm. So then I was happy to ask questions and happy to be a beginner. And I actually went out saying that to everybody. I'm a beginner. I'd like to be paired with people who know more than me, please. Mm -hmm. And so if we had, if that had happened... <laughs> That would have been great, but that is not what happened at all. Yeah. I do find the TV system, you know, coming from, I came from what I call real jobs before I became a TV writer and a comedian and things like that. And I find the TV system so discombobulating, so unstructured, so hard to navigate because of just the lack of like, I guess, the lack of like structure. I really think it's just a complete lack of structure, even when you get into the development process, even when you get into these like really large corporations that are making TV shows. But we have stumbled into an area that now I kind of really want to talk about because um, first of all, I feel like we've totally trashed TV writing, which is not the first time I've done it on this show. Uh, I want people to know for real what they're getting into instead of the you know, the perception of what it is that you're getting into. And I think it used to be something very different, by the way. Maybe. Yeah. When I grew up dreaming about being a TV writer, there weren't many rooms and yes. things weren't scattered across all these different niche platforms. And, you know, as everything um, becomes more fractured, eventually it'll become bundled again. So, yeah. you know, you have all these streamers, they're going to have to bundle those things and maybe at that point, it will be a, some return of some kind maybe. to any kind Let's of normalcy. Um, but I, I do think that's worth pointing out that it's just a very different job than it was. It is a very different job. And it's a different job now than when I started. You know, sure. so, like it, it was a different job before I started. And it's a different job now. You it know? was like, like a golden era where you could make a lot of money and be in a room and have some job security because it was 24 episodes and all those things. Yes. I, and I don't think that's the case now. I'm really curious now that you're talking about it, I, I want to call it. This is on now on my to do list and be just like, what's it like right now? What are you going through? Well, you know, real talk, Tara. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we're we're off the heels of the strike. And I, you know, I've personally kind of taken a 
sabbatical type of time off from like trying to staff and trying to do all these things because I really wanted to focus on my own projects. I haven't been able to do that for a really long time. And when I was talking to my manager about like, what's the state of the industry right now in case, you know, just, just so that I know. And it's wobbly. It's getting back on its legs. You know, a lot of people are still not staffed. And if they are staffed, it's in a small room. It's in this, it's in that. So it's, it's, it's wobbly and it's getting back on its feet. But either way, whether or not, uh, yeah. you know, we're off the heels of a strike, I think there's just a sea change period. I really yeah, do. I agree. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's because of um, the world and the country and all of the social movements that have happened and all of the fear that we've been living under for so many years and like all of the things that have just made people reevaluate me included me specifically and I think it's done the same to you. And where am I going with this ultimately is that, <laughs> do you think, I mean, you're not in the industry as much anymore. So I don't even know if you um, have an answer to this, but I feel like when I was, when you were an exec at Comedy Central, um, and I don't remember the name of the other exec, I think her name was Rachel. Yeah, Rachel. Yeah, Rachel. I think you guys were both kind of in a space where you were already talking a little bit about possibly wanting to leave, possibly wanting to do something different. So I kind of feel like that sea change was starting. It was already starting back then. Oh, yeah. yeah. I never wanted to be an executive. So even as I fought to get a development job, I think probably the reason that you liked me and that I took it more as a like cultural thing if if that makes sense like I just wanted to be around writers because I love writers you seem to love comedians as well I yeah. love comedians yeah. I love writers I just wanted to be around them and mm -hmm. get obstacles out of their way because that's what I would have wanted as a writer as opposed to I want to run this network one day mm -hmm. like there was no job above mine that I wanted ever um I always would have preferred to be a writer so for me it wasn't even it, it was I've never said this out loud in a public way, but it definitely was, I always thought of it as a springboard and never thought of it as my final destination. It was just going to be how I, and I didn't know exactly how it would work. And that's another reason in, in those four years of misery that I stayed at Comedy Central, because I intuited that that brand would be important to me somehow. I didn't know how, but it was better to work at Comedy Central than a coffee shop where nobody knew me. There was like- right nothing. So yeah, I always knew, but I, and, and I think that's why I was so not ego driven. I think a lot of executives feel like they need to say something because they need to prove that they're worthwhile, that their job matters, you know, and we'll give notes based off that. And it's a really hard job actually. And I don't mm -hmm. knock executives. What, what nobody sees is the unbelievable amount of politics, red tape, difficulty um, behind the scenes, you know, and, and you really need a good executive to help a TV show just get on the air, frankly. Yeah. But I think that's why, like, I didn't have a dream of like running Netflix, you know, yeah. like, so it just was never where I was coming from. So you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. And then the other uh, sea change I'm noticing. So it's, it's, it's that sea change. And by that, I'm talking about like, people in Hollywood kind of seeking something else, whether it's more creativity, whether it's whatever, like, and from all levels, whether it is artists or creatives, whether it is executives, where it is, but I, but I have so many people that I know that like either we're talking about wanting to do something else, but so anyway, so this sea change has been going on for quite a while. But the other thing that happened was that I was oh. listening to you on Expanded. Yeah. Um, which is one of my favorite podcasts. I recommend it all the time. And you mentioned in that podcast that you had gotten laid off from Comedy Central. And I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't yeah. leave willingly. Yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was booted out of that job. Which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I wouldn't because... I, I wouldn't have assumed. So you were holding it. You would have never left that job. No, probably. I literally, yeah. at the time, Lily's was coming out. And I, and I, my friends were like, what are you doing? You can't do both of these things. Quit, quit, quit. And I was like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. This job is me. 
So that's really crazy to me because I would have, you know, in my mind, the way that it would have worked is that you would have gotten laid off. And then out of desperation, this book that you had been (laughs) thinking about, you know, writing notes for for years, it's now pedal to the metal, you know, shit or get off the pot. We got to put this together. We got to put this out. But that is not actually how it happened, which is which is crazy to me. What was keeping you? from embracing the fact that you are now an author like what was it fear right <laughs> but fear of fear of being poor right fear of struggle but wait you weren't yeah. that poor because you you sold the book <laughs> yeah no, yeah so it was all money trauma yeah. like it, it money has directed my behavior more than any other um you know parent God, whatever money has um, been this force in my life. And, it, you know, I grew up um, thinking that money was the only thing that mattered. If you had money, you're successful and worthwhile. And if you didn't, you had no value, you had no worth. Um, and so, and I was scared uh, because things like going to the dentist weren't a given. Um, it was really boomer bust. We'd go on a vacation to Hawaii but I can't get a doctor's appointment to get something checked out. You know, my parents drive Mercedes, but I'm there when they get repossessed. Houses foreclosed on, it was really bad. And so for me, even now, um, I won't lie, I'm doing very well. And I've really had to um, notice when I'm thinking and scarcity and I'm like, oh my God, can you afford $18 pad thai from Uber Eats? You know, like I'll, I, I can get, um, completely triggered and out of my mind. And I mean, this is a few years ago when, when this actually happened, I was looking at Uber Eats, $18 pad thai. I start crying. I, my heart's racing. I don't, it's like survival. And I thought, oh my God, something's really off you know, I really need to investigate this. And when you live in that kind of money distress, um, you're hardwired to believe that the absolute worst thing is just around the corner. So I thought if I become a writer, I'm going to be poor, I'm going to struggle, then I'm going to be homeless, then I'm going to die. And there were no in between steps. You know, no, like nobody like takes me on their couch in this scenario. I yeah. can't get us another job as a barista in this scenario. Right. I just die. Right. And that's, and that's always the hallmark of trauma thinking. It's extreme. Right. It doesn't make any it's sense. Existential. It's yeah. always existential. Yeah. 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 So that, so fear, money, fear, I would say more than anything else was why I didn't jump, um, why I didn't, I never willingly jumped into being a writer they they literally had to kick me Forced out. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I, I had to already have a book. So my first book came out at at the basically same time that I got laid off, which was the beginning of the pandemic. So I had to be like also have a book out, you know, like have done be actually be a writer, a published author before I was willing to take on that identity. And even then I was interviewing for other executive jobs. Um, which made no sense. I was so scared. I just wanted money. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had this idea, I need to get this amount of dollars to keep with my lifestyle, etc. And one day it occurred to me at yet another development executive job that I didn't really want. Oh, I should try to figure out how to make money doing the thing I like, not chasing this thing that I know isn't for me. And then it, and even then it took like a good year for me to embrace being a writer despite success. Yeah. So what finally made it click for you? It's still a work in progress. Um, I think I'm four years into being a professional author. I make basically what I made at Comedy Central. Um, and only now am I like, like my heart's racing right now. I'm like, oh, should you have told her that? That's such a, like, oh my God, now you're jinxed yourself and everything's going to go, you know, like. No way. Yeah. It really um, is still something that I'm grappling with. Mm-hmm. Well, that I really, really appreciate your honesty, Tara. I think you have done something that is really 
uh, cool. <laughs> and, Thank you. you know, something super surprising that I just would have never expected. You know, like I was so shocked when I saw your book come out. I was just like, there, Tara has a whole other side of her. She has a whole other, you know, identity that I just really, really want to get to know. And I'm just so glad that you got your book out. I'm glad you've landed where you've landed. Is there anything that you would do differently? And is there anything that you can teach us from your experience? The thing I wish I had done differently, but I'm not sure is possible, is I didn't need to suffer as much as I did. I, I treated myself so poorly. And yes, that self-criticism was a, a big driver and helped me achieve, but it also completely tore me down. And um the amount of questioning I did about, can I do this career? Can I do this thing? I just wish someone had put me in extreme trauma therapy. That's like the only thing I could have done different was go get EMDR quicker than I ended up getting it, um, which is a type of therapy for trauma. Um, and then what I think I can say really um, emphatically is yes, there are outside forces that are going to govern your career. Yes, for sure. But you have so much more agency than you think. You know, I wouldn't right now, I don't want to be a TV writer because it's just not exciting in the same way that honestly me making Instagram videos is because if I make an Instagram video, I'm in control. That's 100% mine. It can travel way further, like way more people are going to see it than if they saw it on TV and I can do it right this instant. And so I'd really encourage people, even if what you want is to be a TV writer, I'd encourage just grab the means of production for anything you actually can do today and do it, you know, because writing begets writing, projects beget projects, you get better, you flex your muscles, just start. What's not helpful is to hem and haw about, oh, the industry sucks and I can't do it. And, oh, I don't have enough time. And, oh, there's something wrong with me. I spent years before I actually wrote that pilot, actually, just feeling guilty about not writing. I wake up every day. Every day I'd feel guilty about not writing. And that, that guilt got to be so bad that I just it was easier to write than not to write. And sort of started this process, but that whole guilt, terrible thing, if anyone's feeling that, just start writing. That That's the cure. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I want to tell you, Tara, before I say thank you so much for coming on the show and being a fantastic guest, is that uh, I wrote a joke. <laughs> about you coming to my house after uh george floyd and bringing me cookies and i want you to know about it yeah <laughs> because, tell me because if you ever hear it you should know it's about you oh wow <laughs> i'm honored so basically the joke is that um what did i talk about the joke is about uh like having allies versus friends like when like george floyd changed my friendships like all my white friends became allies yeah. um instead of friends and then like uh i talk about someone bringing me uh chocolate chip cookies like i'm sorry about racism cookies yeah after george, <laughs> george floyd, which i'm so glad i could laugh about it now you know because uh, because yeah. it was a, such a sweet gift you know but Thank the you. joke that i made out of it was that uh the cookies weren't gluten-free and if you had been my friend you would know that but you were an ally so <laughs> well but in a in a yeah. bitter twist of fate it what? was, I actually knew that you were you allergic did. to gluten because it was my favorite sketch. Yeah. I was just so committed to buying from a black owned bakery. That is and I, hilarious. <laughs> that in that whole thing, I was trying to, cause there was cookies. I think there might've been something else too. And I was like, I can only buy from black owned businesses. Right. I need to go into, I think I went to Compton. Like I had a whole that is plan. So funny. But yeah, and, and they were. I'm sorry about racism. They were. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm funny. really sorry. I'm really <laughs> sorry about racism. <laughs> Profoundly. It was so funny. It was really, really funny. It was a, It was such a... Um... It was just such a weird time. Like I just oh, I can't that believe that was my yeah. reaction. Also, that was my reaction. Was like I mean, bring people I, cookies. I honestly, I honestly like. I'm like, what? 
what is anyone supposed to do right now? <laughs> you know, yeah. like to express our incredible, you know, pain and, you know, uh, just grief over yeah. what, what is happening. It you was know? So, awful. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it, it says surreal. about me. Like, I don't know what it says about me that in crisis, in this horrible grief, what I thought to do was put together gift baskets, essentially. <laughs> I thought it was very sweet. And of Thank course, you. I made fun of it. Yeah. Uh, As you have every right to do And that's so. what you get, Tara, because you love being around comics. So you get you get made fun of. Not the first um, time. 100%. Not the first time. A hundred percent. Well, you're such a delight. You're, you're a wonderful human. Thank you so much for bringing your honesty to the show and talking about this process. I'm so happy for you, dude. I really am so happy for you. That's all. Thank you so much, Tara Schuster. Thank you for having me. Damn. Tara's been through it. She has had such a wild ride and I'm so excited for her future and the books that she's going to be authoring. If you haven't checked out by the fucking lilies, it is on my list. I hope it's on your list. Check it out. She also has a follow-up book called glow in the fucking dark. So she's unstoppable. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you got a lot out of it as usual until next time, homie, get out there, get to work. Thank you.